On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, we are talking about, yeah, recession. Sorry, it's true, but we keep hearing a recession is coming. How can you prepare yourself to protect yourself if we do have a recession? We'll get into that one. Uh, we're going to be talking about a possible school strike. Is that a realistic possibility? Well, we'll talk to the president of one of the unions that we're hearing rumblings may take a strike vote. We're going to talk about inflation. We're going to talk about Tommy Lee and the nude photo that he posted on Instagram and whether there's a double standard online. We're talking about Unifor and the automotive industry. They have a new leader, Unifor does, a new president. We will talk to her and the World Junior Hockey Championship that nobody seems to care about. Why not? Stick around. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. There is a lot of concern in many, many, many corners that Canada is heading towards a recession. So the question becomes, if that if that was to happen, and we hope it doesn't, but if people are right, if the experts are right, and we are heading toward a recession, what can you do, if anything, to prepare yourself for this so that the impact might be less severe on you? I want to bring in Walid Hijazi, Professor of International Business at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. He has written a really good piece at theconversation.com, Six Ways Canadians Can Prepare for the Upcoming Recession. Uh, Professor, thank you for the time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'd like to be here. Thanks, Scott. So well, let's let's start with the, a little dose of splash of cold water or whatever. I mean, you're talking about ways we can prepare for a recession. First of all, do you believe that it is inevitable that we're going to have one? It's not inevitable. There are three possible outcomes. The best case scenario is what's called a soft landing, where inflation goes back down to 2% and we don't go into a recession. But the most likely outcome is that in order to reduce inflation, we will go into a recession and most experts believe that will happen in the second or third quarter of next year. Okay, so there's a whole lot of things, and we're not going to have nearly enough time, and we could do hours on this. So we'll, we'll let's try and whittle this down, because you've given some, some advice on things to do um, if you are if we do head into a recession now, but just before we get into some of your points of what you can do, there are some things that are really out of people's control, correct? And I don't just mean the macro picture. I mean, if you just spent all kinds of money on a house, like where you indebted yourself significantly, you've still got to pay that off. Like there are things that you are going to be stuck with no matter what, that it could be a problem. Yeah, absolutely. And as interest rates rise, all of those uh, liabilities that people have that are financed, and particularly if the interest rate is variable, then absolutely those people will see a lot of difficulty. And many people were complaining when the government imposed those stress tests, meaning that if you get a mortgage, you have to qualify at 2% higher than the rate that you're getting. Now people realize why that was so important, because the last thing you want is have a big purchase like a home. Interest rates have gone up and they're going to go up more. And we have to make sure that people are able to maintain those payments. So absolutely, those people that overextended themselves are going to feel the pressure. And it's okay. So that's one, that's a debt that you're going to be stuck with because, I mean, it's unlikely someone's going to just be able to suddenly pay off their home overnight. There's a reason you've taken a mortgage. But a lot of other people 
have other debt, credit card or line of credit, whatever else you, that's one of the things you've pointed to is if we're heading into a recession, get rid of as much of your debt as possible. Yeah, you know, Scott, and this advice that we give in this article, so these are six tips. These are tips that people should be pursuing all of the time, but especially as we go into a recession. And many people are oblivious to how high interest rates are on credit cards. And they don't think twice about just tapping their card when they're eating out or just in the mall and they just buy something that perhaps they don't need. So the number one piece of advice is to the extent that you can, watch your spending, especially on things that you really don't need, but pay down those credit cards because those credit card balances are being charged very high interest rates and not everybody has the money to pay off their cards, but really watch those credit card balances and bring them down as much as you can because interest rates are going up, which means those interest payments are going to go up as well. You know, you didn't put this in your list of things, but I'm going to ask about this because one of the things that a lot of people do put money into regularly, and some would argue that it's not disposable, voluntary, I guess, is investments. People are putting money into their future, into RRSPs or whatever else. If we head into a recession, what happens to the market? Is it a smart time to continue doing that? Or is this a time to say, no, for now, I'm not going to continue pouring money into my investments because the market may drop? That's, you know, you mentioned earlier that you need hours and hours to talk about recessions. We need hours to talk about that Whenever people think about their investments, they should always consult with an investment advisor. That's how I start. But investments into an RRSP, which is tax-sheltered, is one of the biggest errors that people make. And what I mean by that is not taking advantage of tax-sheltered. So it's very, very important for people to think about the long-term and their retirement. And the most important vehicle that you can take and saving for your retirement are what are tax sheltered. So I encourage people to continue to invest into their retirement. What you specifically put your money into, that should be a, a function of your risk tolerance, your, your particular characteristics, and your life cycle, where you are in your life. No one should panic. This is one of the biggest pieces of advice in thinking about someone's investment. Never panic and never pull your money out because the stock market has gone down. Because what typically people do is what they panic, the stock market goes down, they pull their money out, so they're selling low, and when the market recovers, they buy back in. They buy high, and that's the worst strategy. We only have a minute or so left here, but there's one other one, and you say don't panic. Uh, I must say this next piece of advice um, that you've given it sounds a little panicky. I got to when I read it, you, you, your skin so you get um, a little nervous. Be prepared to lose your job. That's I mean that is a blunt shot to the side of the head, but reality. Absolutely, and tens of thousands of people could lose their jobs, and any one of us listening to this call could be one of those people. That's why it's absolutely essential now, but just in general, to make sure your resume and you yourself are hireable. Update your skills. There's lots of available programs online, in person, through colleges and universities and other agencies to allow you to update your skills, but also make sure your resume is up to date, is polished, it doesn't have any errors, 
and now you're able to interview well, which means just practice a little. But this is absolutely essential because if you lose your job, and hopefully we don't, but if someone does, you want to be in the best position to navigate your way to a new and hopefully better job. It is, uh, it's a piece worth reading. Uh, if you got some time today, go to theconversation.com and the headline is Six Ways Canadians Can Prepare for the Upcoming Recession by Walid Hijazi, who is a professor of international business at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, who's been joining us. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. You take care. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We are hearing rumblings that the Ontario Education Union, the union that represents education workers, is planning on taking a strike vote. Are they? What do, what's going on with this right now? The government and the unions are negotiating. Where do things stand right now? Laura Walton is president of the Ontario School Board Council of Unions. She joins us now. Laura, thank you for the time today. Thank you and good morning. Well, good morning. And so, uh, yes, as I say, and I don't think you would probably disagree, anytime parents hear, oh boy, we're going through another strike vote, we've just had students out of school and going through stuff with COVID forever, we can't possibly be talking about a school strike, can we? Where are we as far as a strike vote? Well, uh, we're not there yet, is what I would say. And as a parent, I completely understand. Uh, But as a parent, I also understand that there's a lot of instability in our schools right now. Um, and a lot of that is what we're trying to address. In what way? What would be the instability? Well, where your instability is coming from right now is that, simply put, there are not enough staff in the schools because boards, you know, the employers, cannot recruit or retain staff due to low wages, due to working conditions, etc. Uh, so you probably remember in the spring they were talking about not enough um, supply EAs, not enough custodians, um, you know, all of these are happening and, and the employers admit it's because they cannot recruit or retain employees. And we're you, trying you, to get that addressed at the table. And you're talking, just to be clear, you're not talking about teachers per se, you're talking about educational assistants and other people who are, um, what's, what's a, I don't want to say on the periphery, that's not the fair way to say but it. No, but actually, who are, what we would say is that they're the backbone, they're keeping those schools okay. running. So. In Hamilton, those would be your custodians and your caretakers, maintenance, trades, um, the trades people on the public board, your EAs, your speech pathologists, your uh, ECEs, secretaries in the Hamilton-Wentworth Catholic Board. And, and certainly, I don't think anyone would dispute those people are very, very important. I also think that a lot of people would say, we want those people involved, but we also don't want to be having a bottomless budget And uh, my question, when I think about the bottomless budget, as teacher salaries have gone up, has that squeezed the available pot of money for the people you're talking about? You know, I'm not going to comment on teacher salaries because we don't represent teachers. But what I can tell you is that across the board, education workers, and that would include teachers, have seen their wages drop 11%. And that's before this inflation started to go up. Um, So as a result of that, you know, what's happening is people are actually taking a pay cut every single day. Um, and so what we're saying is, let's talk about this. Let's, you know, we're seeing, for instance, collective agreements come in that are, you know, really good wage increases, a lot in the trades. Uh, and, you know, that's going to be something that boards have to contend with as they're trying to compete with employees, right? Um, if other people are paying their employees more, they're not going to be at the public boards. 
when you mention the, you know, that the wages have been lost and that's because of inflation, that's because of whatever else is, is recapturing that amount or more the goal? Like what, where's the, what is the, where's the target for what you're talking about with negotiations? Is it to get back to ground zero where you were or get beyond that or what? Well, what we're looking to do is make sure that the, you know, we're earning a living wage. Uh, and that's something that needs to be addressed. The work, the workers that we represent on average make $39,000 a year. 98% of the people we represent make under 60000 per year, 86 under 50000 per year. And Ford himself said that 50000 is low wage. Um, so, you know, we're looking at how do we bring these folks up so that they're having a living wage. Over 50% of the folks that we represent have to work two, three, four jobs just to make ends meet. There's, you know, folks that are going to work hungry because they cannot afford groceries. There are folks that are going to work, you know, worrying about how they're going to put gas in their car. Everything is going up, and these folks are making, as I said, on average $39,000 a year. Definitely not what I think the public thinks of when they think of education workers. Um, And so it's a message that we're trying to get out there. And it's not a livable wage. No, and, and I would agree that probably not what people think, because we think, you know, we, when we talk about education, we think about teachers, and I don't think there's, you know, again, you're not going to want to talk about their salaries, that's fine, uh, you don't have to comment. I think a lot of people go, yeah, we're not worried too much about how much teachers are making, they're doing just fine, but that's this is the secondary part of that. Um, what about the idea that, again, we're ta- we're hearing about these rumblings of, you know, the negotiations and of a strike vote. And what about the idea that, you know, a lot of people in the public are just fatigued with seemingly every year hearing about those in the education system talking strike or, you know, referring to it or a strike vote. Like, is there, is there mm-hmm. public sympathy for your position? Um, I think what folks are starting to recognize is that, first of all, the only one who started talking about strike was the minister. Uh, we're having a meeting to talk with workers about what are the next steps they want to do, and a lot of that will be determined on what happens today at the bargaining table. Um, but parents are also really recognizing that throughout the pandemic, we were there. We were there making sure that their students on site in our schools making sure that the students were successful, making sure that the schools were maintained and safe and secure. Um, And so, you know, there are a lot of people who are like a lot of parents, and we work with parents as we were building these proposals and really took into account what their concerns are. Um, You know, at this point, it's easy to stave off a strike. We need to be at the table. We need to be talking about the issues that matter. And we need to address the unique issues, not secondary, but unique issues that face the education workers and the work that we provide to keep our students, our families, and communities safe. And Laura, we got to run, but I'm guessing that our discussion right now, you're, you're meeting today with the minister, correct? Or with the, with the ministry? Well, so the minister doesn't come to the table. We are meeting the ministry. Today, uh, with, yeah. with representatives from the, from the Ministry of Education, as well as representatives from the school boards. So in a few hours from now, we could have a very different discussion if we were going to chat again. We don't know yet. Absolutely. That's, that's the uh, exciting part of negotiations. Things can literally change on a dime. I love, I love your optimism. The exciting part of negotiations. I, you know what? Well, you got to keep it positive on a Monday morning, right? We, you know we appreciate you that. Ha- you do have to keep it positive, and we are really fortunate to be able to do the work we do. We want to continue to do the work we do, but we want to make sure that there's enough of us doing it and that they're paying, being paid a livable wage.
That is Laura Walton, president of the Ontario School Board Council of Unions, which is under CUPE. Uh, really appreciate that, Laura. Thank you for your time today. Thanks. Have a great day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We get to talk with Marvin Ryder, our friend from the Groot School of Business at McMaster University, about what is happening in the retail world. And what is happening in the retail world is a little shocking because normally for years, if you thought of one of the places where if, you know, prices are going up in a lot of other spots, where where would you maybe go to try and get the deals? Where would be the bargain place you would go? Walmart would be right, I would think, at the top of that list. Well, now Walmart is apparently being squeezed a little bit because of inflation. Walmart, for a lot of people now, is too pricey. Well, two things. What where do you go if Walmart is now becoming too pricey for people? And two, how does Walmart find its way back or other places like it? I'll bring Marvin in to join us. Marvin, how are you this morning? I'm great, thank you. Glad to be with you. Really appreciate this. So let's go to that first question first. I, I don't think anybody would have thought of Walmart as the place that's too expensive for people generally to go for groceries or whatever else. Apparently, with inflation, their numbers are going down. It, how, what does this say about how significant the inflation issue really is that Walmart is considered now too pricey for people? Well, first, let's go back a little bit. For We've had high inflation now for nearly a year. And initially, back a year ago, when, when inflation got to, let's say, 3% or 4%, people said, well, we'll just tough this out. And nice people like me told you this was going to be a temporary thing and we'd work our way through this. We hadn't expected, of course, the war uh, between Ukraine and Russia and its uh, ongoing effect with inflation. And so now that it's gone as long as it has, consumers are looking at their shopping habits and they're looking at two different things. One is changing the mix of goods that they buy. So we've got some people reacting to high inflation by swapping out beef, let's say, for chicken or pork or uh, you know, going to a restaurant for cooking a meal at home. And then the other thing is they're changing where they're doing the shopping. And one of the big winners through all of this have been the very discount places like uh, Dollarama uh, in the United States, where I'm speaking to you from Dollar General. Uh, they have done very well. And, and so what people are saying is, look, if it's back to school season, and this is a great example now, and I've got to get the kids some school supplies, Walmart's prices are pretty good, but I can even save more if I go to Dollarama. Now, is this a permanent change in behavior? My general feeling is no, that this is caused by high inflation, but when inflation eases, we may not be quite as concerned about saving every penny that we can. But for the moment, it's driven their business down a little bit, and it's driven the business of places like Dollarama up. But it does say, I think, something about just how deep this inflation is hitting some people. Because normally, if you're going to save 30 cents or whatever on something, you go, what the heck? It's 30 cents. Who cares? But if people are actually making the effort to, to go out of their way to go even cheaper, that's I think that says something about how much it's hitting people. Well, yes. And certainly as a reminder that uh, across the spectrum, across all consumers, there are some consumers who can be who can absorb inflation of 8%, 9%, and it doesn't hurt them very much. But there are other people who are really on a shoestring. And, and in their cases, their incomes may not have gone up, or they may have only gone up 2% or 3%. They didn't go up 8 or 9%. And so it forces them to change their behavior. Now, 
part B to your question was, how can Dollarama win these people back? And I, and I have a, two parts to that answer. The first is I'm not sure uh, Walmart should do a lot, meaning that I think this, again, is a temporary shift in behavior. And when we get to the other side of this, and there's already signs, again, I'm speaking to you from the United States, where uh, uh, the July inflation numbers were down significantly from 9.1% to 8.5%. And we think we've now starting that trend of seeing this reverse. So for Walmart, you wait this out, maybe by Christmas time, things will be back to normal. But if you don't want to wait, and again, there is the danger that we get to this fall and who knows what COVID is going to do, maybe it will rear its ugly head. If you don't want to wait, then you got to sharpen your pencil. Uh, and here's the danger with Walmart. Typically, when they sharpen their pencil, rather than them taking a lower profit margin and reducing the prices that way, they often go back to the manufacturer of the goods and get them to lower their prices and pass some of that savings on to the consumer. I guarantee you, Walmart's going to try some of that. But I think for the temporary, or for the for the time being, uh, Walmart would be well advised to take a look at those profit margins. And there are many retailers, by the way, who have been reporting record profits during this time. Maybe, just maybe, they should dial that back a little to keep the consumers who are loyal to them coming to their stores. There's one other suggestion, and I find it a really interesting one, and it's a very old-fashioned kind of uh, idea here. The, the managing director of a, a company called Strategic Resource Group is talking about Walmart and says, you know, what they've done is, and they're not the only ones, they've kind of taken for granted that people will always come to them and they and others have cut way back on their advertising of deals and other things because, hey, it's just, you know, you want to buy something, you're going to go to these stores and maybe it's time, maybe they need to do a little more to remind people of what is out there and maybe advertising is still an important thing even for these giant corporations. It is. So, so let's break that in again into two chunks. What they were usually promoting would be their weekly specials. Hey, come in this week, uh, a 12-pack of crayons is on for 89 cents or whatever it happens to be. That would lure the people in for that deal, and then they would buy some other things when they were there. Uh, again, I've said it twice already, but I'll do it a third time. I'm in the United States, and that kind of deal-making is still quite prevalent here uh, in the United States. I'm always amazed when a store has a deal, just how good the deal is, and I'm always amazed the other side of it that in Canada, the stores don't seem to follow that lead of their American counterparts. So you've got to give reasons to people to come to your store. That means doing some really good deals. And then you can't just do them and hope people find them. You've got to tell your story to other people and show them that you've got good prices on many things. Now, Walmart famously uh, uses something they call rollback pricing. So they'll say, you know, yesterday this item was $2.99, but today it's $2.29. Uh, I hadn't noticed them doing that as much over the last year. This may be something they want to return to and, and promote that as they go. That is Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business, who I believe is in the United States today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. I'm in California where it's three hours earlier. Yeah, well, we thank you for getting up at 4.30 to do this, and we, uh, we always appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Glad to be with you, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is that time in the show that we talk about Tommy Lee's thing. <laughs> because it seems the drummer for Motley Crue decided the other day that it was time for him to drop trow and take a self-portrait of it and post it on Instagram. And, um, well, I mean, that's that's a story all by itself, but the controversy that has spun off of this 
is one of sexism because a lot of people, a number of people are saying, wait a second, whether or not you wanted to see Tommy Lee's junk on your Instagram feed, when women post pictures in tiny bikinis or sometimes nude or whatever else, they are taken down instantly. Tommy Lee and his it were up for hours before they were forced to be removed from Instagram. So what is going on? Well, the questions that we ask, the, the hard, the detailed questions, <laughs> got to choose my words correctly, that we ask here on the show. Carmi Levy is a t- technology analyst and journalist who joins us now. Carmi, thanks for doing this this morning. Good morning, Scott. You know, as part of the research into this, of course, I had to go online <laughs> and find this, this image, and I believe I am scarred for forever. Well, hopefully it was not a work computer or flashing <laughs> lights will be going off in the IT department and uh, you'll be called down there. Um, it. So, okay, there's a lot of things here, but the first thing I thought about, Carmi, and, and tell me from there is no way that Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, who all have these policies against nudity, there's no way that they have an army of staffers going over every post that goes online to vet this stuff. They have algorithms, I'm certain, to find pictures that have these pictures that they're not allowed on there. Is there a chance that guys do this so seldom online that the algorithm recognizes female breasts but not male parts? It's quite possible. Um, you know, of course, we haven't seen the secret sauce. Uh, Instagram or the company that owns them, Meta, they, of course, don't share the specific details or the mechanics of how the algorithm works. So until we kind of get into that that black box, it's kind of hard to tell. But, you know, the, the way an algorithm generally works is it looks for anomalous activity. It looks for um, evidence that there's a lot of attention being directed to a particular piece of content that a lot of people are interacting with it. And then it tries to amplify it. It tries to show it in more feeds. You'll you, you often notice when someone posts something, for example, that somebody died, uh, that tends to get a lot of comments. And of course, then it starts showing up in feeds. That's why you start seeing things, for example, like you haven't heard from someone in a very long time, but oh, their father died. That showed up in your feed. All their other stuff did not. There's a reason for that because there's a lot of activity around it. So algorithms tend to be like beehives or the parts of the beehive that have a lot of activity get a lot of attention they get amplified and that's what seems to have happened here is that you know you know because it's well hey it's tommy lee he's got a lot of followers 1.6 million but also he posted something that was offensive there's probably something in the algorithm as well that's looking for something in the photo but interestingly it didn't get rid of it until four hours later and so uh it hung around for four hours generating tens of thousands of interactions um, and and so if there's an algorithm there it didn't work it, it worked to amplify it it didn't work to remove it because let's face it if you're Instagram you want this kind of attention whether it's good or bad you want this kind of activity because it keeps more people using the service for longer allows you to serve up more ads which ultimately is what pays the bills so yeah it's a really interesting point you make is that you know Instagram and others when this happens they they sort of oh we know we don't want this this is not what we want. they they do i mean they of, of course, course they as you say of course they do they just can't say they do 
That's right. You know, like there's there's the PR answer, which is, you know, of course, we, we, we don't allow nudity. And there is, if you look at their terms of service, their terms of use, that makes it very clear that nudity is a no-no, except for when women are breastfeeding, if it relates to health care, things like that. But if it's gratuitous, absolutely no, it's, it's, an, it's a no-no. But then, you know, beyond the PR-friendly answer, there's the, the business answer. And the business answer is, is that um, you and I don't pay to use Instagram. We are the product. And the, the idea is to keep us on it as long as possible so that we can see more ads. Uh, and, and the more people who see ads for longer, the more they can charge for each of those ads. It's marketing 101. Um, and so, you know, so, uh, you know, when Tommy Lee is busy posting something on his junk, everyone's buzzing, everyone's talking about it. People are leaving their summer picnics so that they can pick up their phones and, and take a look <laughs> at this thing. And that's exactly what was happening. I, I start getting messages from friends I haven't heard of in ages have you seen this this post? And it was up, and I'm like, uh, no, but I guess I'm about to. Uh, and and so that's kind of the problem is that is that the company on the one hand tells us you know ethically we're doing everything that we can, but in reality, if it wants to keep the lights on, it needs more instances, more events like this, because that's ultimately what keeps us interested in Instagram in the first place. If Tommy Lee isn't posting photos of his junk, if we aren't seeing crazy things online. Uh, then we're probably not going to be on Instagram as often as we are, which is a death knell for the platform. All right. So the the, the big argument about this or the controversy is this is sexist, that the yeah. company allows this to stay up there for hours while, as I say, women's breasts or others are caught immediately. And, and I'm, maybe it is, and, and I'm not suggesting that it's not, but don't, don't I have never on my Instagram feed that I can think of ever had male nudity pop up. It seems to me, maybe I'm just looking in the wrong places. It seems to be a real rarity. Women in bathing suits or whatever seems far less. Is there a chance that you have to design an algorithm to look for something? Is there a chance it's so rare they just hadn't built the algorithm to look for this? It's quite possible. Uh, again, we'd probably want to, you know, talk to an Instagram engineer. But I, I think uh, it's also that it doesn't happen as often as women posting or, or content of women being posted. So the algorithm may simply, because it's driven by artificial intelligence and machine learning, it learns over time. It may simply not have had enough data to work with over time, and it hasn't sort of figured it out. So it takes a while for it to, you know, know what the A identify B, know what to do with it. What is troubling is that we've seen cases in the past. So you know, Rihanna um, posted a topless mm. photo of herself. They didn't just remove the photo. First of all, it took a lot less than four hours to remove that piece of content. They also suspended her account. Tommy Lee's account wasn't suspended. They just removed the content. So a wonderful double standard going on there between men, men and women. Same thing with Chelsea Handler, Scout Willis, Miley Cyrus. Um, you know, that in, in their cases, their content was also removed within minutes, not hours. And so it begs the question. And I think so it, there is, it's a reasonable yeah. question for Instagram. You know, why? Why? Because there is a double standard. I know it's been called out online since the Tommy Lee incident happened. Um, you know, whether it's algorithmic, and I think it's part of it, but whether it's also an, an issue of internal policy, why the difference? Why and why is it such an uneven, unfair playing field? We got to go. Uh, I am going to go back afterwards and listen to this and find out how many unintentional double entendres we just made, which, um, and I'm sure there are plenty in there. Carmi Levy, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for talking about this. Great finger, Scott. Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The automotive industry is a huge part of what 
keeps the economy moving. However, there are an awful lot of stresses on that right now, whether it's changing or trying to change to electric cars or supply chain issues or inflation or whatever. So how do we make sure that this can be a, this can remain an integral part of our economy? Well, Unifor has launched a new comprehensive automotive policy it hopes is going to help rebuild the automotive sector. Lana Payne is the new Unifor president. She joins us now. Lana, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it too. So before we get into what the policy is, from your perspective, we're talking about rebuilding the sector. How how not strong is the sector and how much rebuilding is needed to be done? Well, I think we're in a moment in time right now, particularly for the auto sector, that, you know, the sky is the limit. Uh, we, we went for a number of decades where workers and our union particularly, you know, had to keep pushing and pushing and pushing to make sure that we continue to have a robust auto sector And from our, you know, basically our 2020 round of collective bargaining till now, uh, where we have a a comprehensive uh, policy that we'll be putting forward to uh, all governments, uh, federal, uh, provincial, and municipal, to talk about what the next uh, phase of this of this sector can look like in Canada. And you know, really, we're at a you know a once in a 100 year uh, kind of recharge, uh, to pardon the pun. And, uh, and that's, you know, transforming the industry uh, from what it was to, a, to an EV future. And, but that also means, uh, you know, recreating supply chains, making sure uh, that we're, you know, doing everything we can uh, to attract uh, investment from, from mining uh, right on through, uh, obviously, to the assembly line. Uh, this, this can be and will be, uh, with the interests and of governments, a... Um, an industry that will be Canadian wide. And already we're seeing huge amount of interest by automakers into, um, into building uh, the sector in Canada. So we're in a really good place right now. We're a year out from auto bargaining again. Uh, so obviously, you know, there, there are some issues at the moment, but given the pandemic, I think I heard in your intro, in your intro talking about supply chain issues. Obviously we've had chip issues, all of those things. Um, so, so for our members, even though we know there are uh, incredibly positive things that will be happen- happening into the future, right now there is still a feeling of anxiety in many cases because of, you know, the leftover uh, issues out of the pandemic, whether they're supply chain related or whatever the case may be. But for us, it becomes about continuing to push for the kind of sector that we know is possible. And, uh, and we're in a good place right now. We just have to make sure that governments understand uh, that this isn't a one-time thing. It becomes about making sure that this is an integral uh, sector uh, for, our, for our economy uh, for years to come. So our policy, which we launched last week, is really talking about how we get there. And uh, I think we had about 29 uh, recommendations covering a broad range of things from the supply chain to the actual uh, building of EV, uh, you know, electric vehicles uh, throughout throughout uh, Ontario, but also possibilities uh, branching into Quebec and, and other provinces. Well, and certainly, I mean, EVs, electric vehicles are what everybody talks about as the future. One of the 
challenges, I think, as, as people look at this um, and say, we want to rebuild the sector, if that's where we're going to go, it doesn't appear, most people say it doesn't appear that we have the infrastructure anywhere close. I'm not even talking about building the cars, charging ports and things. The, the infrastructure, even if you could build the cars to be able to drive them, doesn't exist in this country yet. Like, it seems like you've got two things you're trying to work on here, keeping cars Absolutely. being built and making it drivable. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but if you notice, I mean, every day you almost see more and more of these charger, the charging stations going up. And I think if there's a will, there's a way. Uh, obviously, that means, uh, you know, good collaboration from, from all levels of government. Uh, one of the things we've recommended is that there be a, a kind of a standalone, um, you know, uh, government department, federally particularly, because right now a lot of the decisions are being made uh, by five, six, seven, eight different uh, departments. So just making sure that that in itself uh, is coordinated is really, really important. But I think that this is completely uh, doable. Uh, it just means having to fast track some of those items, uh, particularly around the infrastructure levels. Um, and, and I will say, I mentioned mining off the top. Uh, one of the things that we are talking about is, you know, we, you can't be in a, a position where we're starting new mining developments uh, if there isn't a proper uh, dialogue and consent being given by Indigenous communities. So that is also critical. Uh, I believe our union can play a role uh, in that regard. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot to build up here, but we don't have a choice. We either do it or we're going to get left behind. And uh, if we want to be part of, of the future in terms of you know, the kind of technology that we need, uh, having an industrial strategy for the country, it starts right here uh, with, with transit, with, with vehicles. There's another part of the balancing act. I mean, you are the, the president of Unifor. So you are, you know, obviously you want the best deal for your members. You want good salaries and everything else. Electric vehicles right now are really expensive. Most people honestly could not afford an, a brand new electric vehicle right now. How do we get to the point where you can have both good salaries for the people building it and the expensive equipment that's required and yet make it so that people can afford to buy these in the country? Well, I think it's critical that all the jobs in the auto sector have to be good jobs and family supporting jobs. This is something that, you know, our union has played an incredible role in over many, many decades and we don't intend to stop now. In fact, uh, you know, the expansion uh, of the auto industry, the expansion into, uh, you know, different areas of supply chain, whether it's battery production, whatever the case may be. We see this as an, a huge opportunity, uh, you know, obviously to grow unionized jobs. Uh, with respect to, you know, the price of electric vehicles, I think we all recognize that, you know, the more uh, capacity you have and the more of these that you build right now, they're the, the, new, uh, the new thing. So it's, uh, you know, the supply is, is that, you know, they're going to be expensive at the moment, but the more and more of these that you produce and the more you perfect the technology, uh, the more affordable these things become. Uh, people can go and find, I wish we had a lot more time, Elena, but we, uh, people can go and find the proposals and the recommendations that Unifor has made towards us. There's lots of places online where they can find this list and this information. Uh, I really appreciate taking a few minutes to talk to us today. Thank you for this. Thank you. I appreciate it. Anytime. 
Al Anapain, who is the new Unifor president. Um, and again, go online, just look up Unifor recommendations automotive you guaranteed will find that list and uh, and see what they are recommending you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml if you host the world junior hockey championship you are guaranteed to sell out buildings it's going to get attention you are going to be the center of the focus of everything going on it is a huge deal except the world juniors got bumped from because of stuff back in the winter they're now playing right now in Edmonton and when I say they're playing uh, nobody seems to be watching there was a game between Austria and Germany uh, a few days ago 473 people in the stands there was a game between Austria and Sweden I believe or Switzerland and there were a hundred people even the Canadian games are not drawing attention nobody's there for them a couple thousand what is going on? Is this entirely the problem of being played in the summer? Is it the Hockey Canada scandal? Is it something else? We're bringing in Kevin McGran, a reporter with the Toronto Star who is covering it. Kevin, how are you today? I'm excellent. How are you? I am, well, look, I'm probably a lot better than the organizers who must be um, either pulling out their hair or turning to heavy amounts of alcohol to deal with this. This is a disaster. It, it certainly, uh, it looks to be like the... Uh the uh the world junior championship has sort of jumped the shark here there's a there's a lot going on for the i think for the reasons why uh people just are not tuning in or 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 showing up for uh for these games the way they you you might expect they would because this tournament as you said when it's in canada it plays to uh to big crowds in big markets and uh and right now it's just not doing that the easy answer is this is all to do with Hockey Canada's scandal that's going on right now, and people have turned their back on Hockey Canada and rejected anything that they're behind. And I'm sure there is part of that involved, but these tickets would have been sold presumably long before we ever learned about this. So I can't imagine that's all of what's going on. No, that is certainly part of it because... People are distancing themselves from uh, from Hockey Canada right now. So the uh, the city of Edmonton's like uh, local tourism bureau is not promoting this the way they might have in in previous years because they're distancing themselves from it. So there's no signage around the city. There's no just people just do not want to cheer for that particular logo right now, and so that is part of it. But I do believe that they knew well before the scandal broke that this tournament wasn't going to be a sellout. There's a lot of reasons for that. This is Edmonton. You know, I have friends here, and, and they just tell me they're. this is festival season in Edmonton. People do not want to be inside in a cold rink. The the summers in Edmonton are, are, um, are uh, you know, not, that, not very long, so they <laughs> yeah. do not want to be. Uh, they want to be out. It's, it's actually quite beautiful weather. Edmonton in the summer is quite underrated. I actually think it's a fantastic city. Here in August, the, the sun is up all the time. Uh, the weather is perfect. So people do not, you know, they, they, they'll go watch tennis. They'll go to their festivals. It's the Fringe Festival right now. Uh, they don't want to be inside. They want to be outside. And it's not hockey season. And, and you know, there are other summertime hockey tournaments that do not sell, like there's the uh, under-18s, the Helenka Gretzky tournament. They do not sell. They do not draw crowds. So you have the hockey scandal where you have people distancing themselves. You have no sponsors uh, sort of co-promoting this. 
and then you have a you know a, a summertime event in a city that's had the World Juniors a few times. People just don't care in summer for hockey right now. They want to do something else, and you can't blame them. But Kevin, even with that, and those are all you know, I think very valid points. I think we certainly understand those. When you're sitting in an arena of 18,000 seat arena and there are a hundred people scattered throughout the building. It still has to be a stunning visual to see just how completely disinterested people seem to be. <laughs> it, it certainly is. I mean, I've covered this tournament for about uh, 12 years or so and every Canadian tournament, even like the, you know, the Latvia versus Austria or whatever it might be, uh, they'll still have a thousand or 2000 people in them. And, and like you say, there's 80 to a hundred people in, in them right now. It is, you know, they, they they don't really want to talk about it. They're, you know, they'll, they'll, there's, no, there's nothing much anybody can do right now. It's, it is what it is. It, it does look very much like a lot of other international hockey tournaments out of season. Uh, there's just not the same interest uh, mm. in the summer as there is when, uh, when ever, as there is in the winter. It's just, well, just before, it's, it's just, a winter sport. Just before we go, do you think this has any long-term lasting impact or do you think that everybody i double wihf hockey canada everybody just says it was a one-off or, or could there be some stink that stings that sticks with this one well i think the last few world juniors before covid that would be that was being played in nhl ranks certainly in toronto and, and in buffalo were uh, the interest wasn't quite what it had been, say, back in Ottawa and, and other, like in 2009, 2012. The, the tournament got really big, and in the last few years, it is starting to get a little bit smaller, and the next one is going to be in Halifax, uh, the one in winter, the regularly scheduled one. Uh, so I think what you'll see is this tournament sort of regress to, back to junior cities, the true junior cities rather than NHL cities. Downsize, uh, yeah, downsize itself. to the right, uh, yeah. to the right size, right size itself. Uh, Kevin McGrain, reporter with the Toronto Star at the World Juniors. Listen, I wish we could say, Kevin, everyone's going to be reading everything you write because normally they would. Mm-hmm. Let's hope they do. Let's hope there's a little more interest, and um, you know, because even with this, it's still better if people are watching. Uh, Kevin McGrain, thanks so much for taking the time today. Oh, my time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.